Podcasting from downtown Toronto, Canada, it's The Medicine Club, a new podcast about medicine, medical innovation, and medical culture. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Samir Grover. I'm Dr. Kashif Perzada. I'm an emergency physician practicing in Toronto. And I'm a gastroenterologist based out of St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. All right, with us today we have Dr. Jason Lee, our colleague who works at the Toronto Allergy and Asthma Centre. Dr. Lee is a specialist in clinical immunology, a specialist in allergy, and a specialist in internal medicine, and maybe known to you from social media, he is an evidence-based medical educator who is extremely uh, active with respect to his educational uh, efforts, including a podcast that uh, Kashif and I were just on. Uh, Jason can be found at at Lee underscore Jason K. Welcome to the Medicine Club, Jason. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. So questions we had for you, like this, um, you know, COVID-19 is presenting as a seriously multidisciplinary problem. It has you know, implications, changes to the way we uh, take care of them in the ICU, the emergency department, you know, what uh, roles that hematologists play. Most interesting has been the strange immunology of the coronavirus and difficulties in getting viruses. Now, there's a number of vaccine candidates. The first one is in trials is by Moderna, an RNA vaccine. What do you make of the field of vaccine candidates and and uh, the prospects of this of getting one? You know, um, there's many interesting vaccine strategies. So the, you know, there's a strategy of trying to get your own body's machinery to produce the uh, the necessary antigens and peptides required to elicit an immune response. There's other strategies looking at uh, you know different parts of the coronavirus. Uh, so for example, you know they all share the spike glycoprotein, the hemagglutinin acetylesterase glycoprotein, uh, envelope glycoproteins or nucleocaspid phosphoprotein or the RNA itself. Um, and, you know, maybe preferentially producing some of the RNAs that are involved in sequencing these glycoproteins or the envelope proteins is a strategy to kind of use your own body to produce different antigens. You know, that, that's, a, that's the most interesting strategy of all, use, using your own body to produce and manufacture these peptides, because normally how vaccines are done, they're uh, usually artificially grown or uh, synthesized in, in other cells. So this kind of bypasses that need, so you can get a mass-produced quantity much quicker than uh, the traditional method of uh, culturing them. So you know, many, many different uh, strategies and many different pro- protein targets and envelope targets and the RNA targets. But, you know, it really remains to be seen because what may be a good idea when the clinical trial is all said and done, you know, there may be interesting adverse events that occur that would make it, uh, you know, uh, too harmful to use that vaccine. And uh, some vaccines may only be partially effective or not at all effective. So, you know, this is the problem I think a lot of people have a frustrating time accepting is that, you know, to develop a vaccine safely and effectively, it does require quite, quite a bit of time. Um, you know, we were very lucky with the H1N1 uh, problem in the past where we had the candidate vaccine ready to go. Uh, but this is kind of a new strain of corona. We haven't encountered it before. You know, we don't have a vaccine for the other coronaviruses. Uh, so again, we're really starting from scratch and we do need to do the safety of phase one, two, three trials to really see if this is effective. Is there anything unique about coronaviruses that makes them difficult? I know like um, 
you know, people don't develop great immunity to coronavirus infections as it is. It's a single-stranded RNA, so by very virtue of the nature, it's very uh, unstable. You know, we RNAs uh, are not as stable as DNA, uh, for example, and RNA uh, is prone to slicing and, and recombining easily. Uh, so this is the whole uh, emergence of COVID-19, just like um, SARS in, uh, back in uh, 2002 and 2003, and uh, MERS as well in 2012. So, you know, it has somehow acquired easily these, sim you know, sequences from bats, I think, in, in SARS, we don't know for sure, maybe it's about cats, who knows, and MERS from, uh, you know, uh, dromedary camels in 2012. It, it just different strains of COVID-19 uh, coronavirus, uh, and some may be more pathogenic than others. You know, it does tend to, uh, if you want to use the term, uh, mutate or acquire new sequences easily to try to help evade the system. And, you know, our bodies do have uh, a lot of entry points for uh, coronavirus as well. You know, they, everyone is talking about uh, droplet and uh, airborne, uh, thinking it's mainly limited to respiratory epithelium. However, it can be, uh, and there are two now, two reports now, one originally from China that suggested that maybe in pediatrics it's fecal oral. And uh, so again, there's many ways it can get it, many ways it can change, many ways it can adapt, acquire new sequences. And that's the virtue of a lot of uh, single-stranded RNA viruses. That's great. What do you make, um, there's been some comparisons to dengue virus in that you know, there that you could have a phenomenon called antibody-dependent enhancement. So the first time you get the virus, you get a mild illness. It's the second time and uh, subsequent where you get a much worse a reaction, uh, like dengue shock syndrome or things like that. Yeah, so th that could very well be the case. But uh, you know, we, we don't we don't have uh, a, like a great deal of evidence to really um, know for sure that's what's going on and or what's going on every patient. You know, one of the um, uh, interesting things about this that's emerging is that uh, it does tend to predispose patients to clots. So, you know, the any enhancement of the immune system, um, whether it be from prior exposure um, and or activation or overactivation or complement or or dysregulated activation of the uh, the initial response with uh, too much um, essentially unabridged and un Un with no checks and balances activation can lead to uh, sort of more severe outcomes in this condition. But in terms of what does it, you know, uh, what you mentioned is just one of the ways this can occur. Um, there are other ways it can occur as well, uh, but we just don't have enough, uh, particularly in, in the basic science research, enough uh, clear-cut reasons why in some patients it tends into a more, um, you know, mortality-inducing event. Do you think that uh, endogenous immunity to, uh, to COVID-19 is something that's long-lasting, or do we have any data or any other correlates that we could use to determine that? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So there are many viruses, as you know, that cause common cold. And uh, as, as we're all well aware from getting a common cold, uh, you know, once or two times, if you have children, maybe more times a year, that, you know, we, we get it year after year. So coronavirus, there's about four strains that cause common cold, and maybe six, in fact, actually. Uh, rhinovirus um, is another one that causes common cold that we seem to keep getting, uh, you know, year after year. Uh, RSV, people can get uh, more than one infection as well. 
you know, uh, a lot of these viruses, you know, do have very unstable sequences that they're based on. And it's, it's very easy to, for them to change a little bit. So when we normally develop an immune response, uh, our B cells are naive. And the ones that recognize the, the virus antigens are the ones that will change into IgG. When, when that change occurs, it goes, undergoes through something called uh, affinity maturation where only the very highly tightly binding antibodies go on and live in your body. Uh, and the other ones that don't bind highly are actually just killed off. Your body doesn't need them. So it doesn't store these antibodies that don't have high enough affinity. So the idea for your immune system is if you get exposed, you can have mount a rigorous response with a high affinity antibody. However, remember the ones that don't bind tightly have actually all died off. So you actually don't have the antibodies that your body used to make that had a looser fit that could maybe have a, you know, more of a skeletal key uh, effect. So you, because you drop those clones, you have to start the whole process all over again. So any little change in the structure and shape, antibodies are very specific, especially the highly refined ones that have undergone a process called somatic hypermutation, where they've actually changed the DNA sequence. That whole process has to start again. Little changes can affect things, and it's hard to uh, maintain lifelong immunity when things are changing. So yes, unfortunately, by the nature of uh, you know a lot of uh, the RNA-based viruses, they it's hard to have an immunity system that recognizes each little permutation. Worrisome for uh, for convalescent plasma, right? If you try to get antibodies from individuals who've had COVID nineteen and the antibodies are no longer functional. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, the idea behind convalescent plasma is to uh, get uh, plasma and you're hoping for antibodies in that plasma that recognizes the coronavirus that the patient, that your patient has. But again, we already know that, you know, the coronavirus has changed in some parts uh, and it's already evolving. So we, you know, it's really hard to know if you're going to even get the correct antibodies. You know, I, I suspect they may be somewhat helpful that my, my guess and my gut instinct now without having, you know, had the benefit of having seen the trials completed is that they will definitely offer some uh, protection and benefit. And one of the uh, strategies to try to find uh, new medications is actually isolating the convalescent plasma and seeing what antibodies the successful survivors of coronavirus develop and trying to replicate that antibody as a monoclonal antibody. But yeah, if you get a different corona strain, it may not be helpful. I wonder, can you, if the virus, the RNA virus changes so quickly, does, can you have multiple versions attacking you at once in one infection cycle? And then your body's trying to adapt to that constantly? I suppose that's always possible. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. You know, it, it's possible, for example, for a patient, you know, rhinovirus is something a little bit better studied than coronavirus in the literature. And, uh, you know, people get, uh, have uh, been reported to get both rhinovirus and coronavirus at the same time, for example. So, uh, you know, there you have it. It's possible to even get the flu superimposed on coronavirus. Sure. I'm sure as well. I'm sure. We're going to see that in the fall for sure, I think. And, uh, yeah, we may have already seen it too. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how meticulously we're checking for these things. Now, um, you, um, what do you think of the biologic treatments? You mentioned monoclonal antibodies. Um, drugs like tocilizumab and Kevzara, uh, IL-6 inhibitors are in trials right now. And, you know, to sort of put a halt to what's being posited as a cytokine storm that sort of leads to rapid deterioration 
um, formation of the ground glass opacities in the lungs. What do you make of that? Uh, I will say this, you know, in the beginning of any virus infection uh, in the respiratory epithelium, having IL-6 is a normal part of the immunity uh, cascade. So you, you actually need uh, IL-6 in the beginning and you need, uh, you know, the host of changes that occur alongside of it, like the induction of chemokines. Uh, chemokines are things used to attract white blood cells out of the blood into the tissue that's affected. So this is part of the effective immune system. So this whole uh, cytokine storm, uh, you know, idea is that when you have continuous and activation of IL-6 production and IL-6 continuously having this response, it's a, sort of an over-exuberant response. And the over-exuberance, uh, you know, may lead to a cascade of events that's actually not helpful. Uh, so your immune response is actually more deadly than the virus itself. The virus may still kick around um, because, again, the whole of your immunity uh, needs to shift from innate to adaptive, and IL-6 is just the beginning part that sort of helps along this process. But if it is uh, unabridged in the later parts of the immune clearance, you actually don't want as much IL-6 around. If you have too much of that around, you get too much uh, collateral damage. I guess analogy is, you know, if you have an insurgency somewhere in the world, you don't want to always be dropping, you know, nuclear weapons because the collateral damage will be worse than, than you know, uh, actually doing what needs to be done, maybe a surgical precision strike or whatever analogy you want to use. So uh, IL-6 is, is a interesting target. You know, the, the perception that a lot of physicians may have, it's, it's going to be a broad spectrum, uh, every coronavirus patient getting it. But, uh, you know, I, I think we should emphasize that the IL-6 blockade monoclonal therapy should really be reserved for patients who are sort of spiraling out of control in this, uh, uh, you know, multi-organ involvement, uh, coagulation activation, uh, you know, requiring ventilation or, you know, are, are hyperperfusing. Uh, I think it should be reserved for more of the severe end of the spectrum of these patients. What kind of markers would you look for um, to, like, if you have a COVID patient, like, what, what would be your triggers? Uh, again, if we're talking about overactivation, uh, you, you know, it's hard to measure cytokines, first of all, uh, in, in patients. Uh, but if you, if you can ideally measure cytokine markers, you want to be able to compare the viral load uh, in conjunction with things like IL-6, interferon, uh, alpha, beta, gamma, uh, TNF. Um, and again, you can't really measure chemokines because they're in the tissue. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a blood test you can do. But if you can measure the cytokine activation levels and compare them to where you think they should be along, that would be the ideal way to, uh, to figure out when to treat um, patients with IL-6 blockade uh, treatment. You know, there's been many different permutations of IL-6 blockade that's ongoing. So, you know, every one of these have a little bit different protocol of when to initiate therapy. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it remains to be seen when the optimal timing or the clinical characteristics are. Is it a certain level of, uh, you know, lymphopenia that's required? And again, the lymphopenia is, is interesting too because it, it, it may not suggest, it may suggest that they're not present or they've actually gone into the tissue. It's hard to know what the uh, peripheral blood lymphopenia uh, really means. 
Yeah, interferon's an interesting uh, sort of direct cytokine sort of uh, blocker. I think it's been used uh, for MERS in terms of its therapy. And the University of Toronto in its uh, uh, COVID initiative just indicated that there was going to be an interferon lambda uh, uh, initial study that was going to be uh, done to determine whether it was a useful target for COVID-19. That's actually done at the Division of Gastroenterology, Dr. Jordan Feld. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, there's uh, other uh, biologics that may be helpful in the cytokine storm. Uh, a computer modeling uh, study that looked at all targets, looked at even using uh, IL-4 and 13 blockade to try to sort of rebalance the, the aberrant immune response. Um, again, you know, we really need the clinical studies because sometimes what happens is you, you, you do run the risk of making things worse sometimes if you use it in the wrong situation. So um, I know there's a lot of uh, irrational exuberance with respect to uh, studying these uh, things, but you know, we, we kind of have to hold our horses and see, you know, what is actually helpful and what is not. Because, again, the immune system is pretty complex. There's many, uh, you know, cases in history where biologic targets were thought to be great for a condition. But in the phase one trial, which is when you just tested on healthy volunteers, there have been some, some examples of catastrophic problems with mortality and, uh, and permanent uh, kidney failure and things like that that no one predicted. So... We really need the trials before uh, jumping to any conclusions. Why do you think uh, testing has been slow to roll out? Uh, if you, you know, like, if in your opinion on it, it's um, you know PCR tests and then antibody tests. Do you think we should be rolling out more um, antibody testing in the population? Um, absolutely. So you know, I think there's been a lot of regulatory hurdles, and you know, we have to sometimes accept that you know not every test is going to have the sensitivity and specificity that we really need. Uh, you know, so within that limitation, it's possible that if you, for example, have a low, you know, sensitivity that's not like 99% or let's say it's only 80%, you gotta maybe just repeat that test three times. But we do need to have our regulatory bodies and I'm looking and speaking directly to Health Canada here to have a rapid approval process because there are many testing kits approved in other jurisdictions for example, the EMA and the FDA that are still not yet approved in Canada. So I don't know what their holdup is, uh, if they're being overly prudent or just not nimble enough to approve these tests. As imperfect as they are, they do offer uh, some uh, some benefit in, in sort of getting rid of the backlog and clog. And, you know, point of care testing in particular, it's been slow to be approved in Canada. Um, I think that would be very helpful, uh, you know, if it were up to me, and, you know, in, in, in many parts of the world, in different countries, uh, point-of-care testing is the norm uh, where every single patient stepping in a clinic in a hospital gets tested. And we really should, you know, be armed with the tools. We're just not being given the tools right now. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're luckily we're middle of the pack in terms of our mortality and, and uh, other metrics. But again, you know, we, we have to try to aim for excellence here and aim for a nimble, fast response to evolve with the evolution of what's going on, but it just seems like we're in a state of inertia. That might be asking too much right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think uh, in broad strokes, Jason, do you think that uh, uh, serology will play a role with respect to opening up society again in Canada? So that's very uh, controversial. So, you know, uh, all the media outlets and the lay press were going crazy about how Germany was going to use uh, you know, serology testing to allow workers to go back in. 
you know, it, it's kind of interesting how over, again, this irrational over-exuberance without knowing the full data, uh, there almost seems to be a lack of prudence and caution. So, you know, you mentioned South Korea before. I'll tell you how cautious they are. So they're really trying to sort out this issue about serology testing and trying to uh, link it to PCR viral load. You know, they're, they're running into problems in seeing that the PCR test, you know, may actually show just bits and pieces of the coronavirus that are, that are not infectious anymore. Um, and they're, they're being prudent in other ways, too. So, you know, they've had single-digit numbers of new cases of uh, COVID-19 with active surveillance and testing. And, you know, their, their Minister of Health actually just said that they need the number to be zero for two consecutive weeks before we allow anyone to go back mm. to work. And, uh, you know, their infectious disease doctors have opined that, you know, we don't know for sure if having an IgG means that you're no longer infectious or, or, or you know, you're actually uh, immune for sure. You know, what if you're, the, the IgG you have is not protective against the new one? It may test positive in a serologic testing, but there may be, uh, you know, a lot of unanswered issues that we just can't confidently answer, but people want to jump on every little thing. Yeah. I think it's going to be a long, messy road to uh, getting out of this, requiring a lot of research on the way. Yeah, and, and a lot of, um, I think, uh, I think you know, time, uh, and, and that's not going to be a satisfying answer for, you know, the, the person who's lost their job and livelihood. Uh, you know, we, I think governments are doing a, a good part with that in terms of trying to support uh, everyone to, uh, you know, basically not starve to death. Uh, but we we definitely need prudence this you know we can't do things on our own timeline uh with respect to covid-19 but we can do things and we should change the structure of how we approve tests we should have a rapid approval test even in, in normal times which health canada by the way does not uh the fda has a fast track stream we do not uh the ema approves things a lot faster than, than health canada does you know, the european uh, authority yeah, the European uh, Global Authority uh, that approves their drugs. You know, even, um, you know, most parts of the world where we consider, you know, developing countries have, you know, faster approval processes than we do. So I, I just don't know. Oh, it's crazy. Not- like, I've seen um, a lot of these tests are actually made in Canada and they're being used abroad. Yeah, so there's one Canadian company, uh, you know, that uh, makes a testing kit that's approved in Europe and, and, and the U.S., but not in Canada. Uh, not a, again, it just speaks to the you know sheer, like what the heck kind of thing you know with Health Canada. Like, no, it, it was interesting. I was speaking to a rep from a, a company, and they were saying that they're not even bothering with Canada for plasma donations because there's so many regulations and restrictions here on that that they're just focusing on Europe and America. And it's surprising. Like, we can't approve tests that are done in peer countries. Like, you know, South Korea is a pretty developed country, probably more developed than us even. Uh, Japan, you know, Europe, uh, America, like, I don't understand why we can't use these tests here. I don't understand. And, you know, I, I have my personal thoughts on who should be working at Health Canada and who should be overseeing our, our Minister of Health is overseeing all of Health Canada, actually. In fact, anytime I do any clinical trial, it's actually her signature uh, on the approval forms. So again, I, I question, you know, how someone who's never done clinical research or has been a medical doctor is actually even capable of uh, understanding everything. But anyhow, that's the system we've, uh, uh, we have here in, in, in Canada. 
<laughs> so let's let's close the loop, uh, Jason, and back to vaccines. So when uh, when can the audience, uh, do you think, um, at the earliest, expect that there'll be a vaccine candidate that's made its way to market? Is this something that's going to be a couple of months away, or is it something that's going to be significantly longer than that? I'm I'm an optimist by by heart, so I'm hoping by next winter we have a vaccine. We're throwing a lot of money at the at the problem, and every country is racing and trying to support this. You know, pharmaceutical companies that are typically enemies of one another. So for example, uh, Sanofi and GSK just partnered up on the research on this. Um, and, you know, a lot of efforts are being made. You know, there's many, many vaccines that are candidate vaccines. So, you know, when there's competition, usually things are faster. So, but even with that, I think by, by winter, uh, which may be too late for a lot of people. So, you know, p- some public health officials in, in the U.S., uh, you know, are already talking about, you know, relying on herd immunity potentially. Um, so, you know, that's the, the pace of this research just can't be sped up. You know, there's no good human model that we can test the immunity and you know, mice are not humans. You know, monkeys are not humans. We just, we just need the time to actually do it and to do it properly. You know, there's one company that's banked on their vaccine working. So they've actually already commissioned 10 million doses. Uh, it's a complete risk without having even done the phase one trial. Mm. Um, again, you know, they're, they're hoping that their vaccine works out, but we, we don't know. And, you know, if you ask me personally, would I take an untested vaccine? Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah the, um, I guess we do have a human model that's called uh, Red State America. It's coming soon <laughs> in about two weeks. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, not, not not if all of the UV light and bleach will be able to treat all of those individuals before they develop a humoral response. Yeah, I, I could not believe that uh, that today. That was uh, that was that was very interesting, you know. And you know, I think thankfully, I you know, I think Canada's a lot better off with uh, with our government and politicians. I'm I'm just glad uh, I'm not in the U.S. where people are filming hospitals being empty and. You know, doing other ridiculous things. Well, it's amazing. After uh, uh, Trump's crazy press conference, you have Trudeau announcing this tremendous amount of funding for uh, for COVID nineteen uh, re- uh, research. It just shows you the tremendous difference between the two countries and uh, yeah, one point one uh, billion dollars. I'm just, yeah. I'm just concerned about uh, vaccine production. Like, I think we only have one maker, Sanofi. I think that makes vaccines in Canada. Like, if if Trump gets all nationalistic, where are we going to get all our vaccine supply from? Yeah, you know, uh, thankfully, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are global companies, and, you know, uh, very few are uh, headquartered in the U.S. Uh, A lot of them are in in Europe, Um, so uh, I think, you know, they they can't be influenced as much by by Trump. You know, one thing that does concern me is, uh, you know, we touched on this earlier, is all all plasma-derived products and uh, blood products, and uh, a lot of them actually require... Uh, processing in the U.S. through a process called fractionation. And uh, we, in Canada, as, as great as country we think we are, we actually don't have a fractionation plant. So uh, when you donate blood, if you need a plasma-derived product, it actually goes to the U.S. for this fractionation, and then it gets shipped back to us. Um, so, you know, the concerning thing for me is, let's say convalescent plasma does work out. Um, uh, this is actually a strategic national resource blood products are a strategic national resource the u.s is actually the world's blood bank and uh trump could on one of his temper tantrums to shut it down if he wants to 
just like how he tried to shut down the 3M um, N95 masks. That's so crazy. It, 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 is, it is insane, yeah, how much power uh, they've given this one, you know, stable genius. Well, hopefully he doesn't listen to our podcast and get any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, thank you so much for appearing on the Medicine Club today. We really enjoyed this fantastic immunological discussion. Uh, again, everyone, uh, uh, at Lee underscore Jason K for his exceptional work with respect to education and allergy and immunology. And again, all of the uh, show notes will present on, uh, on Twitter on at MedClubTO. Thanks again, Jason. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.